Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Welcome back to the TeamCast. My name's Harry Moffat. I'm the director of the Mission Critical Team Institute down here in, down under in Australia and uh, New Zealand. And uh, I thought it's been a little while and I thought I'd get back into the saddle and get myself familiarised with the team cast again by maybe taking a little somewhat of a, a navigation pause or a navigation stop and uh, just check in with with Preston, who uh, who joins me today on the team cast. How are you, Preston? I'm doing very well, Harry. Great to talk to you again. You too, mate. I don't think we need to muck around with introductions for you anyway, but uh, people can look me up and be underwhelmed, I guess. Hey, uh, mate, what I wanted to do today, we've got the Melbourne MCTI Summit coming up in less than a month. And the good news is we're all but sold out. We've got our numbers and we've got some great international organisations and people attending. And the theme of the summit, you and I have been travelling this year together through the US and UK. And one thing I picked up on is, is there's, there's always change, changes everywhere. It's, a change is the normal state of things. But there's some significant challenges and change going on in some of the organisations we visit. And I thought it'd be timely, not only for the, the summit to, to pause and reflect on the great change that's going on around the MCTI community or the MCT community, but maybe just for us to have a, a check-in and, and talk about what we're seeing, talk a little bit about change in, in a historical context, and then zoom in to potentially finish on um, on what that means for individuals and leaders within the team. So it's a massive area. There's whole universities dedicated to change and change management or departments are dedicated and, and uh, courses, and a lot to chew off in around an hour. But I thought, firstly, I'd just boldly ask you, you've been travelling a bit, you know, what are some of the themes you're seeing out in the uh, the mission critical teams as you've been going, getting back out into the world post-COVID, mate? Yeah, Harry, thanks very much. I think it's a really important question. We, we're going to be releasing an article soon that deals with some of this stuff. We're releasing it just to the teams now, but, but prior to the summit down in Australia, it'll go out in LinkedIn and public. And it deals with some of these questions about the changes specifically the changes driven by the impact of COVID and post-COVID, if we can ever say we're post-COVID, and the change out of Afghanistan and the impacts that that's have done, that's done to not just military special operations, but also tactical law enforcement, to medicine, even a little bit to fire and wildland fire. And even to NASA, all the teams that we're working with are, are going through a level of change we just haven't seen in a while. And if you're only in your career for, let's say, five or six or seven years or 10 years, it can seem like a lot of radical change. But I think it's worth noting where we are in sort of the historical context. Just keep in mind, and just thinking about just military here for a second, the first 
real Western military was the British Army that was created in 1606. But keep in mind, Sandhurst, which is their professional military institute, wasn't created until 1801. And the U.S. followed in 1802 with West Point and then later with the U.S. Naval Academy. But why does that matter, right? In, in Australia, it was done true and that was 1911. But why does that matter? It matters because the professionalization of the military, meaning what I mean by that is that it's actual a trade didn't happen until the middle of the 18th century, or 1800, excuse me. And that matters because that's the conventional side. The soft side, the side that MCT interacts with, MCTI, wasn't created until the 1950s, right? That's my dad was in college in the 1950s, right? This is this is like <laughs> living memory kind of stuff. And so when we think about change, we have to think about it in the fact that soft is relatively new. In the U.S., when you think about 9-11, I think it's triple zero for you or triple nine. I always forget the other country's emergency services. Triple but in the zero, U.S., yeah. yeah, that didn't occur until 1973, Harry. Like I was born in 67. I was six, right? When my when I was two years old, you didn't call 911. You called the police, you called the fire department, you dialed them on a rotary phone, right? And you called the, or you just put somebody in a car and you took them to the ambulance because there weren't really ambulances. These are all relatively new. When you look at the FDNY, it was a fire service up until 9-11, where it became an all-hazards organization. Yeah. Wildland fire was created after World War II with picks and shovels. They're now dealing with fundamentally different issues. So what I'm getting at here, Harry, is that while from our perspective, we can see radical change, we got to understand that this isn't radical change in the context of things that have been going on for hundreds of years, these are all very young institutions and young, relatively speaking, career fields that we're still figuring it out. And so we have to think about it in that context. Like, we haven't nailed some of this stuff. And you know how I know that? Look at the suicide rates of these organizations, medicine, fire, special operations, tactical law enforcement. In, in military special operations, we've lost four times, in the U.S., four times as many military personnel to suicide than we did to combat. Let that sink in for a second. That's a clear indication we have not figured it out, right? We talk about the professional development of people. We're not nailing it. And so there's a lot of work still to do. And so all I'm going to end here by saying is those folks that are saying, oh my gosh, there's so much change and man, things are really not the way they should be. Take a deep breath and look around, right? Are we nailing it right now and that we shouldn't change because, man, I don't want to rush to failure? Or do we necessarily need to take a deep breath and look around to fix some things that just was duct taped for too long? Yeah, and I, li I, I like the emphasis on professional development because I think that uh, that's an area where things are changing whether people want to or not. I think there's a demand with the young reinforcements that are coming through now, the, the new cohorts uh, that uh, that they're going to be set for success post-career as well as while they're while they're in in their careers you know I, I was at a soft unit recently and I was walking through the museum there and I looked at all the photos from Vietnam Korea Borneo even as recently as Iraq in the 90s and back into 2000s and I was looking at the body shapes of the individuals and they're all very very lean 
There's no big buff muscles. There's no, you know, big guns, big chests, all the beach muscles. And you contrast that to the body shape of today. Now, we've got a much more professional approach to how we build people, but the job was being done arguably, I would, because I'm old, would argue it was harder back in the day, carrying massive packs and spending weeks, if not months, out in the jungle on operations. And it just goes to show, you know, sometimes I think the change, the ideal of the job leads the change in, in an individual's mind more than the necessity of the work. And then that becomes self-fulfilling in that the ideal then becomes what we select for and what we how an institution idealised the perfect individual and how we assess them. And I certainly saw that at the end, towards the end of Afghanistan, I think we were really picking someone who was selected for the art particular job, which was jumping out of helicopters and kicking doors or whatever, you know, whatever uh, analogy you want to use, rather than a full spectrum, a person who can be applied in a full spectrum of contexts in, in the operational setting. I'm not sure if that translates specifically across all mission-critical teams, but uh, there's certainly I felt like there was a back-to-the-future moment for me looking at all the old guys and girls from the, from the 70s, 80s and 90s. I think it's a really important point, Harry, because it speaks to a team's archetype. What does right look like and feel like for an individual at a team at a particular time? And as you all know, Harry wrote the very successful book, 11 Bats, and (laughs) it's world-renowned. And, you know, it it talks about his time overseas on behalf of Australian Special Operations. And I've interviewed a lot of people from your generation over the years. And one of the comments that have come up a couple of times, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because it sort of references what you were just talking about, was – There was a period of time before, right around 9-11, just before and so forth, where CrossFit had come out. And CrossFit was huge, but it was a lot Mm. about strength training and not a lot about aerobics. And suddenly these elite teams look like... Right. Right out of right out of like movie star model catalogs. They show up overseas and are being asked to hike long distances at altitude, and they're all gassing out because they can't that's not what they trained for, right? And I'll, and I'll I'll throw it back to you for comment, but one of the things I find fascinating is one of the most elite teams now in the world, their selection criteria where they had this long list of workouts and everything else, it's now down to put on heavy pack, hike long distances, because yeah. what they found was if you want to be successful in our team, bone density and the ability to endure long distances is really all that matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're now that we're re-engaging here, again, I don't want to make it all about military context, but now that we're re-engaging back regionally, our operators have to start to realise that they're going to have to put the packs on and go and walk through the jungles for days and weeks on end. And we've kind of lost that muscle or that muscle has atrophied slightly with uh, the overemphasis on a single you know, ideal of ourselves. And, you know, you know, social media doesn't help that. There's all these pictures of the warrior and the kit and the the perfect gun and the perfect setup, you know, and we can kind of get a little enthralled with that. And I think there's, a, whether we like it or not, there's a, a a compelling disenthralling, if you like, of that that ideal and that image back to a more normative appreciation of what, what we need, a full-spectrum individual who can operate in multiple domains across multiple environments. One of the other really interesting things that's come out in this paper we're writing is you've talked about just re- just a second ago about this fight of what's atrophied, right? In between, whenever we're pivoting from one kind of conflict to another kind of conflict, it's invariable that some of 
the things that we used to be good at, we've atrophied at. But one of the things the entire society is atrophied on is what I'm calling the reflection muscle. So yeah. part of that put on a backpack and hike long distances of which I, in my career, have done quite a bit of. Part of that is you're stuck in your head on a 25 mile hike with a 60 pound pack, right? Or the other side of that is on a 500 meter hike that takes all day to get 500 meters. Yeah. Right. But you're, you're mostly in your head during that point. There's no cell phone. There's no headphones with music. It's just you and your thoughts and misery, right? While your feet are (laughs) bleeding or the packs, the straps are digging into your body or you're like, am I doing damage to myself right now? Like that's what's going on in your head. And the problem is we've got a generation coming up and this is not a critique but just a recognition that the majority of their time is spent being stimulated by a phone, by a, by a computer, by a tablet, by a screen, by audio. And what we've let atrophy is the ability to just sit still, be alone with our thoughts, without our thoughts eating our brain alive. Yeah. It's, it goes to one of the big challenges of the time at the moment. I was talking to Simon Handel, who will be guest speaker at the summit about this. He's the head of uh, trauma and anesthesiology down at Alfred Hospital, and he leads up the, the trauma teams down there. And, you know, they're wondering, I guess, but uh, having seeing gaps in the selection profile, the selection process, and he wants to, he's looking to overhaul the whole the whole system, but they have similar problems, and this is the same across all MCTs, with uh, the maintenance of standards, this kind of, I get that you need to, main, there are certain standards we need to meet, but just asking the question, are, are these these standards really fit for purpose in the new world? Have you having seen similar things in in other MCTs in the US. Absolutely. And let's put a fine point on that, Harry, if we could. And and let's use medicine as an example. So here's what we know from the science. We know that in order for us to solve complex problems like trauma surgery, where you don't know what's showing up, it's going to show up in two minutes. Could be a gunfight, could be a car crash, could be a plane crash, could be a train crash, could be a zillion things. You don't know what it is. You and your team with your technology are going to need within about 300 seconds left to figure it out. And what we find because of the amount of information required that you're going to need a team that works well together, but has broad cognitive or neurodiversity, meaning they think and look differently. We know that's the right answer to solve that kind of problem. And so what we have to do is evaluate whether or not the standards that were created 30 years ago, 50 years ago, are appropriate to get us the maximum cognitive diversity and neurodiversity that we can. So there's a trend to relook at standards. That's that's the impetus behind it, right? Without without being pejorative or being political, that's, that's the general positive idea behind it. Now, here's the problem. People are like, yeah, but those standards exist for a reason and they're not wrong. So what, what I'll give you an example, Harry. So you are a resident and you're going to make an incision on a patient and you go to make an incision on a patient, but for whatever reason, you've developed a bad habit. When you make a decision, it's usually too big 
And because people wanted to develop you, they would want to maximize your self-esteem. They wanted to really pump you up in a hard job that they didn't hammer you early on. So through that, you developed a bad habit. Now you get to a tier one hospital where you're surrounded by the best surgeons in the world. And they look at that and they code that is that's damage to the patient. You can't do that. So now you've got this really interesting balance. You've got an attending physician who's balancing their ethical duty to develop a personnel and their ethical duty to not further harm a patient in both an operational environment, but also a learning environment. So which do you prioritize? Well, hopefully the answer is you prioritize the patient. So what does that mean? It means you have to hammer the student a little bit. So the question is how? But here's the, it goes back to your point, Harry, earlier, which is if there's no history in that student's history, sorry, there's no background of taking and receiving critical feedback and then moving on it, you know, working with it, then when I turn to you and say, Harry, can't do that, man. That's it hurts the patient. It's wrong. Fix it. If I see you do it again, you and I are going to have a real problem. And I'm saying that because I have an ethical duty to help the patient. But if you're not prepped for that, Harry, that may seem like an attack. It may seem like, oh, I'm holding you to a standard. There are all these other emotional sort of issues that get involved. So what we have to be really, really careful about is making sure we understand that in the modern educational system, we absolutely do want to develop people. But if they choose the hard path, if they choose the path where they're going to actually make decisions or work in environments where there's immediate and severe consequences to to poor behavior, that they better be prepared to be adjusted quickly and sometimes aggressively without taking it as an assault. And that's right now where I think we're not necessarily getting it, gritting it really well. We're not nailing it. Yeah, I've had a few discussions about giving, receiving feedback in a more positive way rather than just, uh, you know, to coin your phrase, you suck, suck less, you know, have more discussions about how do we, in fact, give people scripts and prime them for those discussions. And it goes to uh, routine versus critical communications, a concept that you've talked about a lot. The standards... It seems to me uh, one of the one of the big things I've seen, or one of the big changes I was woken to, woken to, I had my eyes open to when we travelled to the UK early this year is potentially that the, the the rise of the enabler. I don't know how else to put it, but it's been something stirring around in my mind. And I, I guess, well, I suppose firstly I should just uh, qualify what I mean. In in a special operations environment, in the past, our job has been to, or one of the roles has been to get technical experts or people who are experts in their trade or or area of technical prowess to a problem or to a an environment to do their job and then safely extract them out that's that's one of the roles that we've we've had in the past and it seems now that that some of the uh, organizations the enablers have actually they've grown in their footprint inside the the and, and they've become their own capability deployable and actually in in a lot of cases able to be deployed without the use of operators, special operators, if you like. So that's what I mean by enablers. These are people like communications, IT, language, and other probably more sensitive capabilities. 
and it challenges the thinking around a single gateway for selection. And there's a number of organisations that are coming to terms with this at the moment. And uh, it was interesting to be in a room and kind of see the tensions that these standards that go to this group of individuals are not the same as the standards that have go to these group of individuals or assess this group of individuals and the, and, and the tension that that causes and uh, the silos it causes, you know, cultural silos that it causes. But I think it seems that that is the future. It's not no longer potentially one gateway that everyone has to cram, cram through and then they're called operators per se, but there's a number of gateways in the future and maybe does that give the operators or the people coming through uh, more opportunity to choose their path, the hard path, or what do you think about that? The multiple gateways of selection and uh, versus the single gateways in the past. So let me let me put a paint a really clear picture so people can kind of see what we're talking about in a very concrete way, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on its head a little bit so you can see where it creeps up in areas that we're not even paying attention to. So. Everyone here has heard of the Navy SEALs, and what they may not be familiar with is the Special Weapon Combatant Crewmen, or SWICs. I might be saying that wrong, but basically, uh, the Navy SEALs have this extraordinary capability of these amazing small fast boats, and you've seen them in some of the movies. And to drive those boats, both as the driver, the navigator, and the and the person who handles the weapons on the boat, you have specially trained folks that do that job historically, the way that you enter that pipeline to be selected by that is that often what you do is you're trying out to be a SEAL, you fail for whatever reason, and then you get put into the pipeline for these combatant crewmen. And historically, that meant that when you were part of that team, the boat crew, boat handlers, all you were were to the world was not SEALs right? That was your whole identity. And you were considered an enabler. Your job was to get the SEALs where they needed to go so they could be cool dudes. Fast forward, right? However many decades. And suddenly these boats have evolved and these folks have evolved as such where they have their own individual missions separate from SEALs that are actually really important. Except culturally, they still see themselves as, well, we're not SEALs. And so one of the dangers that's happening right now is that we have this rise in cyber, in intelligence, in use of drones, use of vehicles, mobility, all these things, which historically were mobility and usually were just, I mean, enablers who were usually just hired after the fact without uh, their own culture badge, beret, and said, yeah, just support these cool guys and you just drink coffee and don't get in the way. But now it's being flipped. So there are some teams that are having real questions of, well, what does it mean to be an operator? What does it mean to be an enabler? And are those terms still how we mean them? And is it still what's going on? And so where does that come into our regular normal life for everybody else? Well, let's think about nurses and doctors. So let's think about a trauma resuscitation. And this is going to make some people's heads explode. A trauma resuscitation is, right, somebody comes to the hospital, they're in the hospital, all of a sudden their heart stops breathing and they stop, or they stop breathing. And they swarm a team called a resuscitation team that's run by a doc, but usually done by a lot of nurses. Well, do you really need the doc, right? Because historically, the nurses are enabling the doc, but this stuff, for the most part, is pretty straightforward, the science of this. Mm. And so 
are we really, is it really appropriate for us to still be pulling this highly specialized trained individual to come in to do something that's pretty straightforward? Now, I know there's some doctors on the listening right now, that their heads are exploding and they're like, well, president, that's way more complicated than that. Yes, it is. But you can understand what I'm trying to get to here. Some of our assumptions about the way teams are both selected and they're they're implemented are just not true anymore. And we're going to have to own all that. So in terms of different pipelines, this becomes a really important point because pipelines is where culture and identity is formed. So you go to the SAS pipeline, you're going in to become the SAS. You're not coming in to be a plumber, right? And that's really important. And so if you're part of that organization, but you don't have a pipeline, then what are you? Because identity, connection, belonging, as we've talked about many times, is super important. And teams are going to have to start really thinking deeply about this human, this human in the corner there. How do they belong here? How do they connect to here? And how do we create a mechanism to enable that connection and belonging and that purpose? Because if we don't, we're going to have a lot of strife and we're going to have a lot of turnover. I like the idea of the uh, the trauma teams and relating that back to the military. Simon was telling me recently, and, we, and you know this, and, and we've heard it before, but just reiterate in my mind that sometimes the teams that he gets might be the first time he's met that person, and the and the and the other person haven't seen since college, and the other person to see regularly. So there's a cognitive agility or a leadership agility there that there's there might be someone that you know really well, and that's that that someone you you know not at all. And you've got to establish really quickly rapport in, in kind of nanoseconds, uh, oh, sorry, in, in, in um, micro meetings, if you like. Yeah. Uh, we've just got to establish rapport with someone very quickly and get the job done. And and I like the idea, he, he mentioned something about just setting some three basic principles or five rules that he has. I can't remember and recite them, but he'd just get there and say, hey, team, these are the operating principles for the next thing. I've, we've only got, I've only got 10 seconds to get these across this is how we're going to do this. Get on and do your jobs and let me know what's going on. So, And I think um, the, the military, more and more, I saw that happen in towards the end of my career where the enablers were running the show. Our job was just to enable them, <laughs> which was kind of counter. And, and a lot of operators resist that. Now, they see that as an affront or or that you know, they're no longer the, the, the centre of, of the operation. Of course, there will come a time when they need to be, or hopefully not, but uh, and, and, and of course, that's... That, that's uh, uh, that's a different conversation. But we, um, but I think that Harry is we need all those capabilities, right? Like we need them all firing in full cylinders. But what I would ask you real quick, to, based on your experience, if you go back to the beginning of your career when you were operational and you think about somebody who's there now and you think about how much time you spent on your intact team, right? Working with your mates, doing your jobs where everybody knew each other could finish each other's sentences, to how much, what percentage of their life is now doing that vice working with people. Maybe they're just meeting for the first time and will work together kind of briefly before they move to the next project. Is there any change? Do you see any change on that? Uh, absolutely. I think you could, at the start of my career, you were in a team and you were in a team for a long long time and you stuck with that you know team alpha for maybe two years and you had this this potentially the same team leader potentially the same 2ic uh little movement or or enough movement for progression career progression i don't think i had the same team twice in one year in the final years and uh, you've moved between different jobs 
high kinetic probability, low kinetic probability jobs, and you'd have completely different teams. I remember the most challenging was maybe being in Kabul and turning up and there's uh, two operators, two linguists, both of who were hugely overweight and couldn't run a run out of sight on a dark night and that's enough that increases the risk profile out on the street and doing work and then a whole bunch of other people that you've never met before you don't you can't you, you couldn't say that you could vouch for them or trust them they're locals or from a third party so those kind of teams you've really got to get together and 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 build empathy and rapport inside the team very quickly because you're out in the, the street the next day but I think, as again, I think I think there's an agility that's required in in leading those teams. That's probably a lot more onerous and a lot more challenging than it used to be uh, only decades ago. Um, and it goes back to my earlier point about you know professional development. I suppose is an area that I think is more and more on the lips of the the mission critical teams that I talk to and your professional development is one of those areas where people can be very torn on. Uh, The old operators would say, why do we want smart people? We just want, you know, war fighters. They resist anything that even smells like a university course or any professional development. But a lot of the change that I see in the in the MCTs here generally comes from single issue zealots, or what they would be called in the past, and they would have been maligned and told to shut up, and they were seen as emotional, etc. But I, but when I look around, when I was doing the the backgrounding for the summit and thinking who am, who am I going to get along to talk about change, each of the individuals were quite zealous uh, or, or what we, you would call as zealots about their area of, of passion and, and what they were passionate about. You know, I, I, I zoomed in a bit quick there, but into the teams and the organisations, it's often individuals who have the passion to, to, to fight through the, the noise, for example, the discussion about standards. Do you see the same thing and any, any examples spring to mind? So, Harry, I'm going to tell a story from your organization, which I think is really fascinating. So, and you'll correct me, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, and it's nothing strange. But I think, to your point, that all change in organizations happen because somebody decides they're just going to roll that, that rock up the hill. And, of course, as soon as they start talking about it, almost everyone's like, we've already tried it, that's stupid, you're too young, shut up and row. Like, there's a zillion reasons. And so in your organization, there was somebody that decided, and it might have been you, that the nutrition of the organization was just not where it wanted to be. It was it was outdated, and they really needed to start thinking about how they were feeding somebody. So you in your mess hall, you have a buffet like many people did, and all you did was take the salad and move it from the end of the buffet to the front end of the buffet. And I don't know if you remember this, but that kind of a thing statistically changed the body mass of your entire organization. And it was a little subtle thing, but it was one of those things where somebody had to be like, no, I really actually want to look into this. I really want this. I care deeply about this. And I know people are going to make fun of me, but I have a feeling I would actually have an impact on this. Yeah, no, the example that springs to mind for me locally, and uh, we both know, I'll call him Tom, he'll be embarrassed that I've, I've used his name, 
but he's probably done it better than anyone else. I, I know other people in the military who have been the, you know, that kind of, well, well fuck this, I'm just going to get on and do it. And I'm going to, uh, you know, I've, I've produced evidence, I've spoken to the leadership. There's a there's a syndrome called uh, not invented here syndrome, which is, you know, individuals take offence if they didn't think of the idea that's being presented to them and therefore they'll, they'll, uh, they can sideline it. And that that's what, can blunt and the zealots and the agents of change inside an organisation. So there's a lesson there for leaders that are listening. Uh, if you're taking offence to someone's great idea, get out of the way. You're probably the problem. And I know Tom, but he was a lot more diplomatic. He, he built over a period of time an evidence base for change to selection, uh, training, development, even fundamentals around uh, how they carry out operations on the ground, so some pretty serious change. And he continually nagged at the heels of the leadership, empowered the operators under his charge he was responsible for. And I don't think I've seen a more successful organisational change. And, and, and he would even admit he didn't know what he was doing. All he knew that he was passionate about it. He wanted to see change, went out into the world. And one thing he's done really well is he has emboldened and enabled other zealots, other people who are passionate about change. For example, introducing um, paramedicine into the teams. There's been a first here. It sounds like a no-brainer when you say it, that they should have their own internal paramedicine capability. These guys are shooting and getting shot at pretty regularly, but the, the, the system couldn't rec- quite recognise it. Hold on. How can we have, no, that's someone else's job. They're over there. We'll call them if we need them. And Tom was saying, well, hold on, but he's bleeding out in seconds. We need them. We don't need to be getting on a comms. We need them now. And so individual zealots uh, trying to force change, I think that there's a, a change required around how we see them as as leaders, not seeing them as thorns in the side or gobby or upstarts or or um, trying to embarrass anyone with new ideas. We, should maybe think about what what are they saying and have they got got a point? They absolutely have to be protected. And I think MCTI, I think most of the people we work with are the zealots of the world. So it's usually our entry in to different organizations. But I will also say that in addition to protecting them, leaders and and there's the you know the famous example from Australia is the availability point, right? And and this notion of there's there's been a lot of research, a lot of research on what causes people inability to deploy, which is really, really a a big issue for small teams. And so if you have X amount of people on your team, you need them all to deploy because if you lose enough of them, you can't deploy. And so one of the commanders, I believe down in Australia, was looking at all this data, a lot of data, and and they basically came to the following point. It actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you like are getting divorced from your stripper wife or your kids are in juvenile hall or you broke your leg or you worked out and try to compete with some guy in the gym and you blew out your shoulder. It doesn't matter. You're either available when you deploy or you're not. And so I'm going to put a board and I'm going to write down all the days that everyone's available. And if and if I look at the board and I realize you're not available because you make a series of poor life decisions a quarter of the time, then you and I have to have a conversation about what's happening and why are you here? And I think that kind of both simplicity of a solution and also the the authority and the courage to just say, nope, we're doing this, boys. I'm not in the mood to have this conversation anymore. I, I got to move on. We got to get stuff done. I don't need another report. We're doing this. So I'll throw that back to you as just another example. Yeah, that is a great example. I'd forgotten about that. An individual 
sitting in the in a brief with uh, one of the the commanders and the availability stats put up on the board and 30% of people were unavailable due to injury or was close to that it was in the late 20s and then the second question the next layer question is okay wh- why are they injured what what's what what, what are they? and then picking through that the majority of them were injured in self-directed physical training so and this is in the days where there was no program so just to be able to then roll out you know say well okay well let's get a program and let's make sure people are recovering and then they're not just doing push-ups and and chin-ups until they bust their shoulders or massive deadlifts until they bust their knees and backs and put them on programs now that's one thing that sounds obvious now build the program and then go back to the individuals and say hey you might be training wrong and that just causes massive issues. You know, oh, what do you mean? I've been doing this for 30 years, mate. Don't tell me you're a skinny bloke and you wouldn't know. And so, you know, that, that's a great example of where change. And because many operators and people in MCTs to a large extent live in their bodies as opposed to maybe a, a doctor who lives mostly in their minds, uh, if I can make that kind of very blunt analogy, convincing someone that they've been doing something wrong for a long period of time and having them accept that that's that's kind of where the rubber meets the road in in terms of of uh, of making change. And, uh, and how you do that is, yeah, if you go back to the old business schools, is either the the the, the quick sprint or the uh, the slow march of change. And unfortunately, in these institutions. Although it's got lower stickability, it's the long march. Generally, you've got to bring the whole organisation on um, on the journey with you, and so th- there's this tension between busting through or selling, which is a, a longer a longer journey. What I loved about that story, though, is the is the aftermath, the sort of epilogue, which was because these guys were often earning themselves in the gym and it was mostly guys and it was mostly because somebody would come along and go oh i've just gotten a new i've gotten a new weight that i've just lifted right deadlifted oh i'll try that too and then they blow out something so now what was <laughs> happening is after they released the availability board people started saying does this move me closer to being available or farther away from being available and so yeah they it started to modify a little bit of the sled dogs all being together and hyping each other up because people were like, this is going to move me away from availability. So I'm going to say, no, thank you. Yeah. And, and availability is a really important thing. It's a good segue, but just finish on, I just finished a, a season with an AFL team and one of the standout, they've had one of the most successful seasons on AFL in, in AFL history. They didn't quite make it to the big dance, but I think, they would be rated as one of the one of the more exciting successful seasons and one of the key indicators of that success was availability they they had availability and what that means in in sports terms is they they used the least amount of athletes during the year to man that team so to speak so instead of using 40 odd athletes during the year due to injury and people out and selections in and out they only used i think around 20 i think it's 26 or 28 which is you know really really low you know people use but uh high availability and i think when you've got that people available all the time that that's when a culture can kind of really start to develop and take hold, it, or a, or a, you know that micro culture, the culture within 
the culture, the team culture. And we know that those cultures can be fractal in, in nature. You know, there are cultures within culture within culture. As long as they all cascade down through the same values and the same operating principles, there can be nuance from team to team. And I think that's a healthy, a healthy thing, uh, I think. But availability is a good question. Now, another thing that we're seeing in probably not so much the military organisations, but certainly in medical, fire and police and our first responders is, is burnout and recruiting. They're two issues which seem intractable. They seem too big to address from an MCTI perspective. They seem like macro, almost societal issues Preston and I, you know, to navigate change, how, how do organisations change in, say, in recruiting in a more competitive world or with less throughput? Um, how do they change to meet those challenge? And burnout, how can we resist the tendency to do more with the same or less amount of people? And I, I wonder if you've, you've got any thoughts or any observations about these kind of really big macros zooming right out, I suppose, so uh, I want to talk about burnout first, and we'll get back to recruiting. A number of years ago, when I worked at the Wharton School, I worked for Jeff Klein, and Jeff ran the leadership program at the Wharton School, and he had gotten an MBA, and he was one of the, he still is one of the smarter people I know. So I came to him one day after a few years of working there and said, hey, Jeff, I am maxed out, man. I, I, I'm doing too many things here, and I need some help. And he was like, I'll get you some help, but I want you to actually use that time to recover. And I was like, okay. So we hire somebody, they come in, we give them a lot of tasks. And within eight months, he comes in, he goes, so how's things going? Oh, I'm totally maxed out. <laughs> I had taken all that extra time and I'd filled it with new stuff. And so what I learned, and we had a long conversation about it, he laughed. He's like, I kind of knew that was going to happen. We needed to scale. But you also have to remember that because you chose the hard path, you have to take responsibility for your throttle. We often think that, oh, my job is to throttle down as hard, and it's my boss's job to pull the push the foot on the brake. No, it's not. No, it's not. The boss's job is to maximize their workers. They're going to be like, awesome. I got a I got a runner here. Let's let's let him run. That's and you'll right. run until you burn yourself out. And so yeah, there's a you, performance punishment. I think it's called. Yeah. You know, the hype that you want you want a job done, give it to a busy person. That's right. So, so what I'm saying to people now is, is that you, if you're going to choose the hard path, you have got to take responsibility for not only looking after yourself, but role modeling what looking after yourself looks like for the people following you. I wonder if we're training people well enough in looking after yourself, self-care, whatever that looks like, self-management, how, whatever name we need to give it to, to sell it. But uh, I wonder how much we're doing that or how well we're doing that. So here's what's really interesting about that is that I would say that we're doing an adequate job of doing the training. The problem is, here's the reality, Harry, is that I can go to any unit in the world, uh, any mission critical team in the world. I can give them all, every the data they need to look after themselves. Everybody can nod and agree, like eat less, exercise, roger that, get some sleep, drink water, check. And I'll come back tomorrow and I'll say, hey, did you go outside and take a walk? Oh, no, because I don't want anyone to think I'm slacking on my job. And yeah. there's this huge peer pressure to just be at your desk all the time, work all the time, return every email. And so it's going to take some personal moral courage for individuals to get up off their desk at 2 p.m. and go take a 15-minute walk, as Andrew Huberman suggests and others, 
that it's just really good for you and stop being so paranoid that you're going to get judged by everyone else. Yeah, I think the I think the future. Uh, there's the performance triad. I think it's a uh, U.S. Army or Marine, you know, obvious thing that they've built into a, a saleable idea. And I I actually think there's a, a fourth in the future, a fourth element to the triad, so a performance tetrad, if you like, and that's debriefing. And I don't think we're I think we're poor at it. I think we still look at debriefing as feedback to find out what's going wrong based on my performance or mental health in the context of a, a psychologist or something. Whereas we need, we should be looking at debriefing, I think, for its real power, which is to make sense of the jumbled thoughts in our head and hear ourselves saying it and talking and making, making that conversation as broad as we possibly can so that we can really clean out the corners and bring light to all the things that are bugging us. And I, I, I think that'll become a, an art, you know, nutrition, exercise, and sleep, of course, and I think the fourth one that's just as important as any of those is debriefing what's going on and as a practice going along. And it might, it may even be for some people. I know I enjoy pacing and talking to myself. I mean, it's it's bloody great to sit in a car in traffic and be able to talk to yourself, and everyone just thinks you're on the phone. So it's legitimising uh, looking crazy. But I think even if it's self debriefing, I think it still has a great power. I think what what our director of story, Claire Murphy, has certainly taught me over the years, and we're still working on it. We're trying to put together a paper. It's very hard to write, but I'll describe it this way, which is even though I've written papers on after action reviews and debriefing over the years, my new view on this, to your point, is I'm less actually interested now on, hey, let's debrief this evolution, this event to find out what went on. I instead ask this question, what story will my teammates be telling themselves tomorrow about themselves and the team? And how do I influence that narrative? So it's not just a meaning-making exercise, which it is, Harry, and I'm not in any way disagreeing your point. I think in addition to making meaning, it's also a narrative-building event, which is to say, after debriefs are a a story-building, you will create the story they will tell themselves the next few weeks. And if, yep. and if the story is you suck, we suck, I think you've done a real disservice to everyone. And so I'm not saying you cover up or make it all glossy, but I'm saying tell the story in a way that we had some good things, we had some bad things. Overall, we're pretty awesome and we're going to do better tomorrow. Yeah. In fact, the integrity of the narrative is what's important. If we leave things open just to transactional debriefing, which we need to do, of course, you know, we got that bearing wrong, we got this right, whatever, those things need to be ticked. But we also do need to tend to the story or the narrative or whatever that means to the individual, because leaving it in tatters almost, just leaving it as it is in fragments in one's head or unprocessed, in a lot of ways, language and writing and journaling, those things are our best uh, effort to make sense of the jumble of thoughts in our in our head. If we can attach ourselves to that narrative or story as a team, I think that's comforting at an unconscious level and it, it gives an integrity to our story that uh, might not otherwise be there if we leave things unaddressed or, or are unprocessed. But I think that, you know, burnout, sorry, mate, but the, you know, that to finish up that burnout 
the debriefing and burnout. Uh, you mentioned Andrew Huberman there and others who will say that there's a neurological function that's taking process when we're debriefing in terms of, you know, buffering the stress hormones or resetting our levels anyway of the kind of neuromodulators, et cetera. I, I'm, it's way beyond my pay grade. But there is, a, there, there is a, a definite neurological process that you're addressing there with your sleep, nutrition and exercise, but you're also addressing when you're debriefing and thinking through and trying to make sense of the jumble of thoughts in your head. Yeah, and I agree with all of that stuff. And it brings us back to this now question of recruiting. And this is this is what I'm about to say is, oh God, people are not going to like to hear this. If I was a if I was a young person right now and you said to me, hey, do you want to join nursing or do you want to join special operations? I would just look around at nurses and and retired operators and go, no, I don't want to be that, right? I don't want to get low pay, work impossible hours, destroy my body, and have society treat me like garbage. Like, no, none of that appeals to me. And so I think we have to fundamentally change both narrative and structure. Right now, people say, hey, we have a nursing shortage. Really? That's a shock to you? Like, that's a shock that people wouldn't want to just get abused all day for long hours for low pay and, and deal with trauma and sadness and not be able to control and get blamed for things they, they can't influence? That You're surprised they don't want that job? We're going to have to fundamentally rethink the way we're structuring things like medicine. We're going to have to rethink that we're not developing MC special operations team for four years, but we're developing them for their life right? For their whole life. We're going to develop them yep. to be thinkers, to be feelers, to be operators, to be all the things we don't get to pick anymore. And so I think if we're going to seriously and honestly recruit good Australians, good Americans, good Brits, good Canadians, good New Zealanders, we're going to have to really start thinking about the fact that are we utilizing this asset, this, this our, our, our civilians, our national assets, our people, are we utilizing them in a way that is sustainable? So real quick, Harry, I know this is a, a tangent, but you'll, I think you'll get it, and I'll close here with uh, this thought is one of the mistakes that people make when they when they get an MBA at Wharton or they look at economics is they don't understand that there's two basic kinds of economics or capitalism. There's farming capitalism and, and mining capitalism, farmers, miners. Miners go to a property, buy it, exploit everything, make a lot of money, and walk away. Farmers buy a piece of property and then have to nourish that property because every year they're going to recoup like their investment in the soil, in the land, in the animals. They can't treat it like it's disposable. And what's happening is we, I'll certainly speak for America, we've gotten stuck in this mining exploiting mentality mm. and we're treating people like that. We got to start getting back into farming capitalism when it comes to humans. We're going to have to invest in them so they can continue year after year to produce for us. Yeah, good. I uh, I have a similar thought. We I think we uh, spoke about it when we were maybe half a dozen pints into uh, a Guinness the pints of Guinness in uh, in Ireland or or London. But that 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 kind of penny capitalism versus corporate. Yeah, the, the corporate capital. There there are two kind of distinct thinking about investing in the in the locale and providing for the community. And uh, I think you're right. I think we talked about this just before we come on air. I think another challenge for MCTs is, is leadership coming in and wanting to make significant change 
in an organisation in a short period of time. And I think there's, you know, again, controversial, there's a little bit of corporatization to command. It's a way I've written about it before where if I go back 20 or 30 years, we'd have, it seemed to me, we'd have commanders who come in and preserve the culture and preserve the tradition. And I'm not saying all of that's healthy all the time. That's Some of that's under under challenge here. But there are large tracts of our, our culture and our tradition, our history, which are very valuable and, and uh, affirm our identity. But they would preserve that. And the changes they would make would be in innovating within a certain constraint. Uh, what I think I see a bit more of now, and I certainly see it this year, I've, I, could, I could name a few examples where I've seen it from the periphery in military and, and police, and is individual leaders coming in and wanted to making their stamp on the organisation and therefore making uh, changes that are driven by their the way they want or the way they see the world rather than the way the organisation needs to be. And what happens is they do, one leader comes in, makes their stamp, they're only there for two years and then they nick off and then the next one comes in and goes, no, we're not doing that now, we're going to do something different and there's a a jostling over time and I think for senior operators or senior leaders in those organisations that are there across multiple leaders, that can be really frustrating and that can add to cynicism, adds to burnout, adds to cognitive load, emotional load. Is that a too controversial thing to say, Preston, or or this kind of corporatization of MCTs, is it is it a thing, or do you what do you? Oh, I'll be even more controversial, Harry, <laughs> and I'll say that it, it goes even beyond that, which is to say that there's real questions right now whether or not let's take special operations, whether special operations, given ten years from now, twenty years from now, looking at the rate of change, the speed and volume and information, the speed in which the enemy is moving. Whether things like psychological operations, cyber, and special operations can work in a military environment, which is to say that the speed in which the NCOs need to move, can they work and do what they're asked to do within an environment where there's multiple levels of decision makers? Can they be fluid enough? So what you've got now is not just what you're talking about, which is the summer help, as they sometimes joke, where the officers come in, have new ideas, they wait them out and they leave, right? You've also got the flip side of that, which is if you ask any special operations unit in the world about NCOs, they will say, well, we're NCO-led organizations and the greatest asset we have are our NCOs. The greatest threat we have are our NCOs. NCOs and the reason yeah, it definitely. is, right, is because those NCOs are the sled dogs. They get everything done. But if you look at the last five years of their career, the question is, is that is that net gain or net loss? And that's debatable in the same way that what you're talking about is all these officers coming in and out with these new ideas that never get to fruition. And so there's this larger, really structural question about how do we maintain speed and agility in an environment that wasn't actually designed to, to deal with this level of speed and agility? Yeah, and no, I've got it written down here. That I wonder, I've got some, um, doing some teaching or lecturing later this year for a, uh, a, a first responder, I'll call it, uh, institute here in Australia. And we'd, uh, one thing I want to hold a conversation with a room full of, you know, senior operator, mid-level command, officer level, uh, a room, talk about strategic thinking and just get a sense of what people think 
strategic thinking is and how it applies in their organisations because I think that that's something that maybe has atrophied, to, to overuse the term, potentially in the last 10 or 20 years with the speed of information, the need, the perceived need for change, how often are they taking a break and sitting back and going, okay, what's the long game here? What, what am I, not what am I trying to change or what effect am I trying to have? Rather, what can I do to contribute to the, to the long-term development, you know? And well, let's uh, go you're back just as you second to your zealot point, which is sometimes the mistake that zealots make is they're passionate about solving just their problem and they're not trying to solve the problem one up or one down. Yeah. And so I yeah. think what you're getting at, right, is that if real for real change to happen, you have to own the whole problem. And that includes the politics, the money, the personnel. You got to own all of it. You don't get to just pick your one hill and be like, well, I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, a great point. Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, th- there's a lot in that kind of strategic piece because a lot of units are under challenge in the military context, you know, around the last 20 years and, and moving on strategically. You know, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. So I, I don't want to kind of just kind of drift past it without saying that, um, you know, there's the conversation's a lot larger than just saying that we need to be more strategic in our thinking. I just wonder if that muscle's atrophied slightly and we need to 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 have a look at it just digressing just for a second one thing i'm enjoying watching well not enjoying i can't say that i enjoy watching warfare but one thing i'm really interested in seeing at the moment as a track um, from a very distant periphery uh the ukraine war that's going on at the moment is my my kind of sense of special operations there a very conventional elite they're at the bleeding edge of the force of the kinetic force say from the ukrainian side and really feel it filling a more conventional elite type role rather than a special operations, the unorthodox. Where, where the special ops seems to be occurring is behind the lines and uh, you see uh, a bunch of individuals who've got no military training, no idea what they're doing really, but they understand that if I get a bunch of drones and I test all these different applications and innovate in real time and make mistakes that I can uh, value add disproportionately asymmetrically to the battle space. And that's special operations for me. So, you know, I, I am looking forward to, I, I, with reservations, of course. I, I'm the last person who wants to see warfare and people being hurt and killed and civilian casualties, but I, uh, I look forward or with interest professionally with the learnings that come out of that and how that may inform and shape, and probably is in real time anyway, our capabilities here in, in the Western, well, in, in the safe, in, in Australia and uh, special operations at least. Mate, I think uh, we're getting towards the end here and there's a couple other things I wanted to address. Two things. I'm really interested in in uh, unpacking a little bit of what you learned, what you saw uh, when we were in the UK and just uh, was there anything there that kind of really grabbed, jumped out at you? We went to a, a, a concentration there, a mini summit, and there were a few different people in the room from MCTs, uh, was there anything in, in in our discussions that we held? And also, I know you're working with um, a, a couple of teams in uh, in the US there, and I just wonder what you're seeing there that they're doing differently, that are point, pointing towards what what good change looks like, or, or what are you know what are some of the themes that they're 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 working through. I think I won't comment on the the UK only because I really want to respect their discretion, other than sure. to say that. You know, they continue to to lead in that space for good reason, right? Because as a and and just generally speaking, because what 
the Commonwealth countries, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, have going for them that they don't think they have going for them, but and they often complain about is because they are relatively small countries in terms of both population and some cases size, and they have limited resources, they often have to innovate and bricolage sort of create as they go with duct tape and bailing wire. But what that also gives them is a speed of maneuver. And that's, that's writ large in everything they do. And so they're innovating in ways in selection and assessment in some ways that are counterintuitive. So you think about these countries with their old traditions, they're, you know, they, they go way back and you think, oh yeah, they'll never, I mean, they have pictures on the wall from the 1400s or paintings or whatever, right? And so you think, oh yeah, they'll, they're, they're, they're hidebound, but it's not the case. Their situation and context requires them to innovate at a very, very rapid pace, both technically, but also culturally. And that was the big aha for me and how impressed I was with them because it's not, it wasn't as an American, my assumption, I was expecting to meet a lot of guys with, you know, grumbly voices being like, oh, we're doing fine. And that's not what I encountered. And that's, that's edifying, gratifying. The thing I will say that I will advocate for, and it's in this paper, is the big learning that I think what we're seeing is this, Harry, is a lot of well-intentioned people during the war were scrambling to get our operators, nurses, firefighters, the best technology and best sort of mental strength and conditioning science that we could in front of them as quickly as possible. And so we, these teams have access to professional sports, the Olympics, to F1, to NASCAR, to, to rugby, right? And, and the most elite folks that are doing and universities and doing great science. Here's the mistake that I think, and I'm biased here, that has been made. You take a kid, you put them in an orientation program, say before they go into UK SF or Australian SF, and you give an orientation program where you're like, here's mental strength conditioning, here's breathing, here's mindfulness, here's meditation, right? Here's drinking. And you, you sit them in a classroom and they write all this stuff down like, yeah, this is great. The problem is, is that moving from a classroom to being in front of Harry Moffat on day one of selection is like going from Earth to Mars. It's not It's not an intellectual exercise. So what happens is I'm this 18-year-old kid. I've spent a month or whatever getting this training on breathing, right? And I show up day one at three o'clock in the morning getting hit with a hose in the face. And I've got a guy that looks like he's really ripped somebody's face off. And he's six inches from my nose. And I'm like, and I'm starting to panic because this is the guy I want to join, but I'm having a real emotional reaction as I should because I'm 18. And what happens is I go, oh, I know I'm supposed to breathe. But because I've never practiced in real life, I start breathing, but it's not helpful. I have what's called the amygdala hijacking and I panic and I ring the bell and I'm out. So what the point of this story is, we've actually got to flip it, meaning we need to give some kids some practical, experiential suffering, shared suffering adversity, like a challenge course, like a ropes course, whatever, and then give them the tools to make meaning of the thing they just did. So what's happening is we're giving them all this intellectual data before they ever get exposed to it and expect them to figure it out. And the problem is they're not figuring it out. You write yeah. about that in the, in the paper about... Yeah. Yeah, a hundred years ago, we yeah. we it appears we may have gone through a similar. That's right. Problem. So the creation of of outward bound, right? So in the nineteen thirties, 
sorry, 1918, World War One ends. A lot of guys from Britain go overseas, don't come home. So there's a generation of women and grandparents raising children in in a in a war sort of post-war environment, austere environment where everyone's lost a lot of people. And they want to protect their children as anybody would. And what that means is those kids aren't running, they're not climbing trees, they're not swimming. But here's the problem. 16, 17, 18 years later, when they're starting to join the family business and the merchant marines, the Navy, the Coast Guard fishing, they're dying of things like exposure and drowning. And all the graybeards are like, what is happening? How do you not know this? How do you not know how to do this? Like all of us literally just grew up doing like walking. It's like walking. How do you not know how to walk? And so they had to unpack it and realize, oh, these kids were just, this. they didn't have that experience. So they created the Duke of Edinburgh Awards and Outward Bound, which is still worldwide, mm. to basically give these kids team-based environments that, that expose them to adversity, shared adversity, for purpose and service. And that's the people who won World War II. And so we need to sort of adapt that model again. But what we're finding, and it, my friend Bryce McDonald- well, so you had a challenge of social media and, and devices and distraction. A little bit. It's also post-COVID. A lot of people were very afraid for their children. And so they were being very protective and not exposing mm. them to things. So my friend Bryce McDonald, who's, who's one of the coaches at UCLA football under Chip Kelly- one of the things he said to me, because he was a coach at the U.S. Naval Academy, and he said to me, Preston, one of the problems that we have in developing young men and women is that we make the mistake that we throw them into the deep end thinking that we're going to teach them how to swim. But what we do is we teach them how to tread water. And tread water under enough stress becomes drowning really quickly. And so we have to actually stop teaching people how to tread water and remind ourselves no, we're actually teaching people how to swim. And that requires a fundamental rethinking. And so what I'm really recommending to people is, yes, this is amazing information. Yes, they should get access to it, but they need a context in which they need a lived experience in which to yeah, go, yeah. oh, that's what I'm supposed to breathe. Yeah, uh, the breathing's interesting. There's a million different, this type of breathing and four and five and seven and box and soft and, and et cetera. You know, I, I, I just say, well, how about just remember to take a deep breath? You know, let's, let's start with that because, you know, under stress, you're going to take shallow, you know, generally take shallower breaths and shorter frequencies. So just take a deep bloody breath. Just remember, I, I, there is a bit of the self-help industry certainly hasn't helped. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it's like giving uh, someone a dictionary and letting them run away and they can't read. I think there's got to be a bit more built around that. And I agree with you. I'm seeing more and more a need for that tying experiential events and exposure events to the learning. And I think that's the void at the moment. There's too much uh, read into and too much, I suppose, assume, assume knowledge if you're just reading it online or through through LinkedIn and probably listening to podcasts as well. So it's probably, probably danger of that here. But one thing I would say, I, I've spent a bit of time in recruiting since I, I left the forces and been around the MCT. There's still great quality of human beings coming through. And, and you know, if for anyone who hasn't been down to a hospital to see what's going on and the the, the work volume and how they, they truly are the, the real 
real most significant people in our community that uh, hold it all together. They are the glue. Always spare a thought. And I have huge respect, even after a 30-year military career, I'm more respectful now for our MCT community. It's what drives me to want to work in this space till I drop full stop. Like when you think about it, and this is what I tell people is, you understand that nurses and doctors have a choice every morning. They could not go to work. There's no law. They're not, they haven't signed up for the military. It's a job. And so we should start treating them with much more care than we do because this whole thing shuts down very quickly if they decide one day to not go to work. So uh, absolutely. We, right. And so they're extraordinary humans. And I just wish that that society would would think about a little more care about the words we use, the way we phrase things, the financials, all of it. I just wish we would take a little more care with this because if enough of them decide one day to not show up to work, this whole experiment shuts down within 72 hours. Yeah, and we need we're going to need them more than ever. That that's just I mean that's that's an absolute fact now, I think. You know, one thing would help greatly is if we could get a bunch of politicians of all persuasions to stop spending billions of dollars propping up big banks. And I, I don't, I'm not afraid to be a little political here, big banks and the like, not just big banks, but uh, they all run at a massive loss and we, we pay to keep them propped up. And we diverted a bit of that money off to our first, our mission critical teams, particularly the ones, the first responders. So I think that's just complete no-brainer. And anyone who thinks that's a silly idea, happy to meet you out the front and have a have a chest poke about it. Hey, um, mate, I want to finish just on on zoom right into the individuals and uh, 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 just the, the individual operators. You and I are probably both at the moment converging or have been converged for quite a while and passionate about the professional development and the life cycle of the operator, you know, treating the whole person for and the whole, well, the, the life going forward as much as you can impact that once you're in the on the teams. So the professional development pipeline of operators, just share with us, uh, you know, you've, you've, again, spent some time with some organisations in the US and, and others and developing a program for training both instructors but also the operators. You know, really it's, 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 it's the whole of person. But in your development, your research of those programs and your delivery of those programs, what are a couple of the, the key things that are really hitting the mark and really resonating with those audiences? The the one thing, and I'll say it both as something that's resonated, but also something that I would really hope for our listeners. And it's something that I'd like you to consider, not just for yourself, but for the young people that you know. And this is something literally everyone can do. So let's say, and, and this goes back to anthropology work with, with Arnold Van Gennep and Victor Turner on rites of passage, but take a kid who's in a classroom in high school and they're deciding to go into the military or go to school. That transition is not just an intellectual one. It's about identity. It's about purpose, right? And they're moving from into a space they don't understand, but it's on a wish and a hope. And we as adults need to stand by and sort of support them in that. And the way we can do it is just ask some generous questions and then be generous with our time to just say, what are you thinking about? Where are you heading? But here's the the sort of deeper message here. That's That's pretty straightforward. I'd like you to add one more thing, though. I'd like you to also explain that this moment where you're transitioning from who you were to who you're going to be, you will have many of these transitions in your life. 
And as you get older, they become actually more difficult. So what I'd like you to do starting now is start to develop a toolkit of what is working for you when you go through this threshold, which you call liminality, between who you were to who you're going to be. And you're going to you're going to make this transition a zillion times, you know, from school to college, to college to your job, to your first job, to your first role, to your first role, to your first leadership, right? And then eventually to retire, somewhere to have a family, to get married. All these things are transitions to becoming a new and a different person. I'd like us all to start keeping notes, right? Because where we fail each other is as in Western society, unlike traditional communities, we've we have stopped having rituals and taking taking note of these transitions to support people and develop the skills they will need throughout their life to make similar transitions. So what I find, Harry, to answer your question is the teams that are giving thought to the entirety of the person and saying, man, we really want to develop not just a good operator, not just a good nurse, not just a good firefighter, but a good citizen, a good human. One of the things we need to help them learn is to have a toolkit of best practices that when they move from this person to this person to Harry 4.8 to 4.9, what's the stuff you learn in the last 30 transitions that you're like, okay, note to self, here's what I'm going to need to think about heading into this. Here's the team I'm going to need. Here's some things I'm going to have to put bring on board I did, I forgot about. Here's some yep. expectations I need to set, et cetera. If we did that for each other, I think a lot of people would be in much better shape. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, mate. One thing I, I think we can learn from sports and what they can learn from what I've seen in coaching, senior coaching programs and, and professional development is that senior coaches are more interested in how they leave the athlete in developing a good person. And I, you hear it time and time again. Well, I do anyway, and I've, I have, it's a, a, a narrow sample or a small sample, but those coaches who place a priority on not only developing a good athlete who's fit for purpose and, and, and et cetera, but also a good person, leave them better than they found them. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, legacy only exists in the humans that venture off into the future. In uh, When someone says, what was it like to work with that organisation in the in the milliseconds after that question's finished, the response, whether it's an excitable one or a or a depressing one, says a lot about a culture and a legacy that uh, that someone's left or or where where organisations at, and I think that coaches are a lot more uh, sensitive to ensuring that those conversations that men and women have after they leave their charge. Are positive ones and and reflect kindly on their time. So, the military, I think, still is a little, I wouldn't say punitive, but still has a lot to learn about uh, treating the whole of the individual, the whole of the life cycle, and leaving uh, building good citizens, not as a priority over good soldiers or good nurses or good doctors or, or police officers, but in parallel with. Uh, I don't I don't think that the two are necessarily exclusive or independently exclusive of each other. And I think, you know, one of the themes I've seen in helping build some of the programs for operators as they come into these organisations is putting those conversations right at the start of their journey. And I think that's the difference. We've often left those discussions, they've been had, but they've been had in the team house 
in the kitchens and or at the bars and they're mostly post hoc or they're, they're, they're occurring after the people experience. I think one thing I've seen this year in a couple of organisations is those discussions, the first couple of days that they're in the schoolhouse, those couple of days are sitting around and talking about this is about what this is what you're about to undergo and here's some of the feelings you're going to have and here's some of the here's a, here's a little rudimentary checklist that I hope gets better over time these are the things you need to tick off and by the way it's not negotiable if you want to work in this organization you need to go away and get this these these things in order and you're this is the new culture we're joining we're not joining you're not no longer joining a culture where you just need to keep up and survive. We want you to come here and we want you to thrive. And by the way, we want your family to thrive and we want to leave you in as best order we can. In a lot of ways, you kind of we're starting finishing where we where we started, Preston, I guess, and touched on a, a lot here that we'll uh, we'll we'll put in the show notes. But um in a lot of ways, the big change that's being undergone at the moment is we're helping operators or saving operators from themselves in a lot of in a lot of ways. We we want people that are motivated and really driven to to drive forward, and that's that's the that's the cohort we want. But in that, as leaders and I suppose greybeards, uh, our responsibility is to ensure that we influence them so that we can care for them along the way and they're available that they're not they're less likely to suffer burnout that they're conscious of leaving a legacy and in in influencing those people around them yeah i really i really do like the uh, the gym analogy where we want to put a program around them so that we save them from them themselves as i said and i think that's the direction of change and we can do that more broadly in a in a bunch of other spheres as well but that's uh i, I guess rounding out for me it's been a great session what are your reflections on uh on what we've been talking about this morning or this after, this evening where you are. I will only say that it's always, always a pleasure to talk to you, Harry. I always learn something from it. And I just reflect back on when you and I first met, which was, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, but you were in the military and you were, you and I were in the outback of Australia. We were doing, um, <laughs> training overnights, uh, observing training overnights. And you were one of those zealots, right? I, I arrived there because you were like, we can do this better. And you still are. And I think I am, I'm always cherish the people in my life that are looking around going, you know, I think we could do this a little better. I think it would actually be really helpful to people if we just took a moment and took that curmudgeon, told him to shut up and just tried <laughs> something over here. And I think I just cherish that and I just appreciate knowing you and appreciate this time together. No, thanks, mate. And uh, look, one of the great pleasures of, of this job and being allowed into the uh, the MCTI tent or being invited in warmly with a lukewarm pint of Guinness or, or, or cup of tea, we'll keep it now, is that we meet, it, it is you know a great privilege to meet the zealots and they, and let's wait let's not uh, overcook this egg you know they're small z zealots you know people who are passionate about change and love their organizations that they're the people we invariably bump into and what a great pleasure that is because cognitively intellectually probably better word they're the people that are on the cutting edge they're the ones that are doing the forward thinking yeah what does it look like across time how do i innovate how do i insert change that's meaningful uh, and how do i as i said about tom one of the most successful change agents i've seen how do i bring everyone on the journey the, the leadership the juniors the old 
guys, you know, the old grey beards, how do I bring all of the stakeholders on the journey? And I think um, you can't help but learn in those environments and that's a, a great privilege. Preston, I think it's getting late where you are in uh, – where, where are you in? You're in Annapolis? Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's just kicking off here in Melbourne. We've got our first uh, first really sunny day for quite a while. We're coming out of the Melbourne dark, so I'm going to go and make the most of that, mate. But it's always a pleasure, and uh, I'm looking forward to tuning in with you at the MCTI Summit in Melbourne here at the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, the other Melbourne Cricket Ground. Thank we you know that the real for listening to our Cricket Grounds, the real MCG. For more information but about looking the forward Mission to tuning in with you there, mate. So go I'll, I'll, until www. then, have a great day, weekend, look after yourself. Thanks very much, sir. Or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a mission-critical team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.